0: Welcome to the OnScript Podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast, and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash onscript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Today I am speaking with my colleague Paul Spilsbury about Josephus, about whom he knows quite a bit, and I think you're going to enjoy this. And we're cross-listing this episode on the Biblical World podcast as well. So for those of you tuning in on that side of things, welcome. And uh, I thought this is an appropriate episode to share uh, across both podcasts. If you have the chance to share the word about. On script and biblical world podcasts, as you're out and about this summer, perhaps you'll be hiking the Continental Divide Trail. And as you're hiking along, you pass someone. Take the opportunity to share the word, because more than likely they're, you know, tuning out in nature and listening to their AirPods as they walk, uh, hike the trail, and um, you can let them know about these podcasts. So, uh, without further ado, enjoy this episode. Hey, everybody. Our guest today is Dr. Paul Spilsbury, academic dean and professor of New Testament at Regent College here in Vancouver. He's published extensively on Josephus, including his book, The Image of the Jew and Flavius Josephus's Paraphrase of the Bible. And he's also published two critical editions of portions of Josephus's Antiquities. He's also written The Throne, The Lamb, and the Dragon, A Reader's Guide to the Book of Revelation, and continues to teach regular uh, regular courses on the Book of Revelation, in addition to other classes at Regent. So, welcome to Onscript, Paul.
1: Thanks very much, Matt. It's great to be
0: here. So, um, you just got back from Turkey. I don't know how jet-lagged you're feeling. Why don't you just share a highlight from the trip? What was the most interesting site that you went to? Uh, Something maybe that you always enjoy or or new stuff that's, that's happening in the world of New Testament backgrounds in Turkey.
1: Well, thanks. Yeah, it's great to be with you and uh, great to be back from Turkey. I mean, it just struck me again how much of the early Christian story happens in Turkey. And, um, you know, I was struck again by how First Peter, for example, is essentially, you, we could recall that Peter's letter to Turkey, if you look at all the regions it's written to, you know, Pontus, Bithynia, Cappadocia, Galatia, and Asia, all regions of Turkey. So that was struck me in a fresh way. I think a highlight for me was going to Laodicea, which I'd been to before maybe 20 years ago. And at that time, it was just a a field in which there were, you know, intentions to excavate at some time, but now it's been substantially excavated and um, really substantial uh, discoveries of temples and roads and uh, the Agora and public buildings and Byzantine churches, 20 churches they've found now. In fact, as we arrived, we had been told there were 19 churches and they were actually digging. And then, you know, our guide went over and spoke to the guy leading the thing. And he said, well, no, actually, this is the 20th church. So there are mosaics and just, it's a beautiful sight. It was exciting to see something that's just been unearthed literally in the last uh, 15 years or so. So that was new and and exciting to see. But there are lots of beautiful sites in Turkey, including kind of the crown jewel, which is Ephesus. To go to Ephesus is always just a huge, uh, hugely exciting thing
0: to be able to do. Yeah, what makes Ephesus so magnificent?
1: Well, it's just such a well-preserved site and so well-re-established, massive theater that's there. Of course, it features in the life of Paul in the book of Acts chapter 19, um, and there's these beautiful houses, um, sort of very high class, uh, houses in which you can see, um, how the, you know, the top, the 1% lived, if you like, it's just to see the frescoes, the paintings on the walls, the mosaic floors, the indoor plumbing, just elaborate, give you, gives, gives you a gives glimpse, you a glimpse of civic life, of city life to see the public baths, you know, just, uh. So many things. Everyone always gets a good chuckle out of the public toilets that you, you know, encounter.
0: Toilets, right? (laughs) Yeah.
1: And, you know, you kind of have to imagine the social dynamic of that. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, evidence of the imperial cult, very strongly present. And just such a I mean, it's such a well preserved and dynamic place where you can you can imagine with the help of the structures that are there what city life would have been like, and then what Paul's mission there would have been like. Um, the presence uh, of gladiatorial uh, remains and so on, little sort of inscriptions relating to gladiators. And um, just, I mean, there's there's dark stuff. You know, gladiatorial stuff is pretty dark and it reminds you of the extent to which the ancient world celebrated these kinds of very gruesome, grisly things. So, yeah, I mean, it's just all all in all, it's a kind of a historians sort of dream sort of like a theme park you know there's so many different things you can riff on and as a teacher you can talk about this or that or you know all kinds of things po- both Paul and John you know have uh, their, their stories intersect in Ephesus and you know numerous other important early Christian things as well so yeah just everything comes together in Ephesus it's um, a very very exciting place to go to to visit.
0: Yeah, and I should say you were you were uh, teaching on this trip and with your wife as well, who leads trips there through, what's the name of her organization?
1: Uh, yeah, it's called Christian Journeys. And uh, Bronwyn uh, leads trips to Bible lands five or six times a year. It's fant- it was fantastic to travel with her and to kind of be a part of this this journey. It was also a Regent College summer course, so we had students and we had others as well. Yeah. And then, I mean, there's so many layers. You have to be an archaeologist of a kind in all of these sites. You know, you've got a kind of, you know, you're looking for the really ancient stuff. There might be Hittite or that sort of level of things. Uh, You've got Hellenistic era stuff. You've got Roman era stuff. And then, of course, you've got all the layers, you know, Byzantine and then post Byzantine up through different layers up to the Ottoman, Ottoman and modern eras that you're always so you're always sifting in any site trying to say okay this is this this is important for you know it's the 14th century or something so then you've got to get your head uh, aligned for that
0: yeah do you have a go-to resource for um orienting yourself or others to um the world of yeah especially kind of first century turkey um and insofar as it impinges on the new testament
1: um, there certainly are sort of good books on the seven churches, for example, like Colin Hemer's book on the seven churches is useful. You know, I mean, I, I often am just reading New Testament uh, commentaries where on the, so the book of Acts, we did a lot of stuff on the book of Acts and, um, you know, this Keener's big three volume thing on the book of Acts. I mean, this was a book of Acts tour in many ways. We were in Pisidian Antioch, for example, is a, it's a great site to visit. And yeah, there's just so many things like that. You're always mining. Even you know the old uh, FF Bruce commentary on Acts still continues to be you know a useful, easy read, very ac- accessible. Uh, but Keener is the is the current one. And um, Kevin Rowe is you know whose book on, called "World Upside Down" on the Book of Acts is really helpful to get a sense of how the Christian message in the in the region turned things upside down. Um, it's a, that's a, a quote, of course, from. Uh, Chapter 16, where Paul um, and Silas were accused of turning the world upside down in Philippi. But so it's just, it's, it's a fascinating exercise to remind oneself that, you know, the past is a foreign country. It's not just the foreign country is a foreign country, but going back into a different time, you have to try to get yourself into the mindset of the ancient world. It's different cosmology, different kind of structuring of society is so different than our own. And to try to get into that headspace is always a fascinating exercise. And it's really exciting to be with adult learners, uh, some of whom are, are students taking courses for credit, others just out of interest. And just to help them see, and just to see actually, the, their sense of excitement of reading the Bible afresh because they're in a place. And to see relationships between things, relationship between The Book of Acts and Paul, the relationship between Paul and Revelation, and the the physical relationships between things. When you realize how close or far from each other certain things were, when you start imagining what does it mean that Paul was a traveler, what would it have taken to actually walk the space that we just traveled by plane or by bus, you know, Um, and to see the terrain, which is very varied, just like you would, you know, North America. You go through different types of regions, you know, desert, mountains coastal plains. Um, it's just wonderful to see the, you know, how those aspects play into things. And then to, to kind of realize again that the early Christian movement was a network of informally associated, you know, friends and family and, and and others, you know, and just all of the ways in which this movement was a grassroots movement, what it was up against in terms of the, the Roman uh, culture that was layered on top of the Greek culture, which was laid on top of the indigenous culture, and just all of all of what it would have meant to preach the gospel in, in one of these highly complex, sophisticated places, and to realize that, you know, Ephesus and Smyrna were not, uh, they, they were not backward places. Were, these were not primitive people. These were just highly sophisticated people. Um, they had literature, they had art, they had indoor plumbing, you know, I mean— uh, sometimes we think that uh, they were behind us, but actually, that's you pretty quickly put uh, you know put that to bed, that idea. they They had different ways of thinking about the world, and they hadn't made lots of discoveries that we know about in science and so on. But they were profoundly intelligent and interesting people, and it's it's wonderful to kind of try to get into their into their lives a little bit, you know, so so yeah, so it's very exciting to do this kind of uh, travel study.
0: Yeah. Do um, On the Byzantine churches, I'm uh, just curious if, uh, are any of those churches over sites that go back to the first century? Because I know sometimes those Byzantine churches are marking maybe a, a previous, you know, kind of an important site. Uh, is there any of that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, that's often a possibility. So there is this, there is a church in Pisidian Antioch, which is now where Paul gives one of his important speeches. And the claim is that or the maybe I don't know if it's a claim or if it's a hunch, is that it is situated on the site of what was a synagogue before? If that's the case, then that synagogue might go back to a very early stage. And then the question is, why was the church built on that particular synagogue? Was it because there was a memory of an, or, you know some kind of Christian worship there? And so there are cases like that. It's often hard to to establish that. Because often, you know, know, when archaeologists do their digging, they often have to decide when to stop, because they they might think there could be something at an earlier level, but they can't find it without destroying the level that they've already attained.
0: Yeah. and so If you have a nice uh, mosaic floor, you know, do you really want to pull that thing up?
1: And so once they've hit something that seems really great, then they're like, okay, they might have some soundings or some ways of trying to see if there was something beneath it. And you know, just in principle, it does make sense that important buildings would have been located in sites for for reasons. You know, it could have been, it was already a worship site of some kind. And then the question is, was it a Christian worship site? Was it a a pagan site? You know, was it a Christianization of, you know, of maybe the the worship of of a local God, you know, that, or it could, could have been a synagogue, or it could be a Christian, you know, place of some note you know so yeah it it is possible that some of these sites when you've got 20 like in Laodicea you don't know which one might be the first one although they may be able to indicate you know kind of figure out which are which of the 20 are the you know is the oldest one Um, I haven't looked into that um, at all but they are able often to tell you know the different ages
0: yeah, another thing that interests me is uh, relationship between synagogue and church in in some of these locations, because um, I know that there's a, a pretty lively discussion about the parting of the ways in between Judaism and Christianity, and that that was probably a varied phenomenon regionally, and and that you know it wasn't like there was a sort of clean break between synagogue and church uh, because you have architectural similarity in a lot of places between synagogues and churches. Yeah, just wondered if you observed any of that kind of thing or have thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is true that the, the parting of the ways was much more drawn out and it was very uneven um, over the centuries. One of the really interesting things, um, as you know, about the synagogues in the Book of Acts is this reference to God-fearers. So this this term that's used to differentiate between sort of the Jews going to a synagogue and the Sort of Gentile adherents or Gentile people who are attending synagogues who are called God-fearers, and it's really fascinating to see that in some of the sites there are inscriptions, especially uh, Aphrodisias is the famous one, where there there's a long inscription that actually itemizes the the Jews in the synagogue and then lists the theos Subomines, that the um, the God-fearers and it gives some of their job kind of the jobs the work that they do and so on. And then also in Miletus, there is, there are, in the, um, the theater, there are seats that are inscribed. You know, it's almost kind of like, uh, I don't know if they were season ticket holders or what it was, but but there's a reference to, um, to God-fearers in the theater. And so it's just, it's interesting to have that kind of confirmation of this, at least this idea, whether it's being used in exactly the same way as acts or not, is still a, de- a debated point, but you do get this idea that there are people known generally who are regarded as as God-fearers and then also people who are uh, identified as Jews. And then, I mean, that suggests a kind of place within society for the Jewish community that at least in some of the cities there was a recognition, you know, that there are these different groups and among those groups there are Jews and there are God-fearers who are somehow associated with the synagogue as well. So that's a very interesting kind of corroboration and interesting kind of connection to the narrative of the Book of Acts. But, yeah, we often don't have direct evidence of the Christians themselves until the, until the Byzantine era, you know. So the other thing that we looked out for were Jewish symbols like the menorah. We actually they were um, examples of menorahs in Laodicea, which was really interesting to see because that's the most common Jewish symbol for the self-identification is the menorah. And then you can see that sometimes the Christianization of menorahs, when menorahs have got a cross superimposed on them, which would be nice to think, oh, this was a, you know, an early Jewish Christian thing, but it's probably a later sort of Byzantine appropriation of the menorah into kind of a Christian iconography. That would be my guess it would be interesting to know what you know others would think think about that but it is interesting to see menorahs. and you see them in like in priene for example which is a an incredible site up perched high on this uh, hillside in uh, southeast southwest turkey and there was it's mostly uh you know a temple to athena and that sort of thing, but there unexpectedly here was some menorah. So you're like, okay, there was a Jewish presence here as well. So the Jewish presence is always the thing that signals to you there may have been Christians here too, because we know that the pattern in the Book of Acts was to preach the the gospel in synagogue. So that's sometimes as close as you as you can get.
0: So Paul, you've written a good deal about Josephus, a fascinating. Uh, figure, um, why should people care about Josephus, or what captures your imagination? Uh, why were you so drawn to him?
1: Yeah, I was drawn to Josephus because of my interest in the historical roots of our of our faith, and as we know, uh, the Christian faith is rooted in things that happened. You know, it's kind of it's a key aspect of of Christianity. Our belief in the incarnation, you know, um, reminds us that Christian faith is rooted in a real historical person who lived and, you know, moved around among real cities and participated at, you know, in life at the historical level of things. So um, I became very interested very early on, even in my undergraduate days in the the world of the New Testament and the ways in which we can get access to that world through means other than the New Testament only. I mean, fascinated in the New Testament. Like I read, Right after graduating from Bible College, I read Josephus's Jewish War, the Penguin version of the Jewish War, just in the summer holidays, and um, it's just a fascinating kind of history book, and it's a little bit uh, drawn out at times, but it's got some you know pretty uh, fast-moving parts as well, and it it um, it chronicles this incredible war that took place between this group of Jewish rebels and the Romans in Palestine and their sort of fateful and Ill, uh, ill-fated attempt to try to throw off Roman rule in, in this, to the second half of the first century. And it's just a, it's a fascinating, tragic story that happens just outside, in a sense, just out the, outside the peripheral vision, if you like, of people who are focusing on the New Testament. It's just over there, in the year 66 to 70 which is you know just after uh, when we think of as the earliest part of the of what's going on in the new testament and it's just such an important event in itself that i was really drawn to it and then discovered as i read josephus that because he gives such a long intro to to the war, he actually gives us a 200-year intro to the to the events of 66 to 70. And in the process...
0: What are some of those events that... Um, oh, sorry, I'll let you go on with what no, you're going to say.
1: Some of those important events are, for example, a really important revolt that happened in the early part of the first century BC under someone called Judas the Galilean, a kind of an early uh, revolt against the Jews that Josephus ties in as somehow kind of a precursor to the ultimate war. So Josephus has got this idea that the kind of the seeds for the final war between the Jews and the Romans were sown 50, 60, 75, 100 years earlier. And that then places the whole New Testament kind of era, the era of Jesus and the first Christians in that era where Josephus says this is when the seeds of that final conflagration were being sown. And so this idea of the rise of zealotry, which is Josephus' idea that, you know, there was this kind of group of people inspired by kind of a political ideology that there should be no God but God. And then, of course, you find in the New Testament and other places these resonances with that idea too, this, this kind of political ideology that Paul says he was motivated by. He says that his persecution of the church was motivated by zeal for God. So that zeal that he uses, that zealotes, is the same word that Josephus had used to talk about some of the ins- inspiring ideas that led to the Jewish war. Josephus says that he advanced in more than anyone else in zeal. And that zeal is also referenced in First Maccabees, for example, in talking about the inspiration of the Hasmoneans who rose up, who tried to throw off and did, in fact, succeed in throwing off the Seleucid, incursion into Palestine in the so-called Maccabean Wars. And then that in turn goes back to Elijah and even further beyond that, back to Phinehas in the book of Numbers, who was described as being inspired by zeal for the Lord when he took up a a spear and killed Zimri in the desert when, when Zimri had sort of flouted the law, the, the law of Moses and had taken a Midianite wife and so on. So he and Zimri had been, sort of blessed for, um, for taking up. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. Phineas had been blessed. Yeah. Yeah. So Phineas in a sense is, you know, so it ties in this whole, this whole kind of storyline and Josephus helps us to elucidate that and gives us other examples of that same political ideology playing out in the first century. So, but there's lots of examples of the ways in which Josephus Elucidates our picture. He's the one who tells us about, well, he tells us a great deal about the Pharisees and different individual Pharisees, helps us understand that there were these four schools of thought. Of course, all the time with any historian, you're having to ask yourself, do they have their own agendas and their own biases that you need to kind of account for? And Josephus has those for sure. But he also tells us about how the temple works. He himself was a priest living in the first century, born in about the year 37. So he is uh, a bit younger than, you know, Paul and Jesus and all of them, but, um, you know, born in the late 30s, grew up in Jerusalem and knew all about these different groups, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes. And then what he calls the fourth philosophy, which is this political ideology that wants to throw off the Romans. And then he knows all about the high priests and the working of the temple and so on. And so important writers like, say, E. P. Saunders, who wrote an important book on Judaism in, in the Second Temple period, really just uses Josephus enormously just to reconstruct what Second Temple Judaism was like, using, you know, some rabbinic sources, but rooted heavily in what well, based really heavily on the use, use of Josephus, who is our most important narrative source outside of the New Testament for understanding the first century world. So, yeah, for all of those reasons, Josephus is really fascinating.
0: Yeah, and and what I really appreciate about Josephus as well is that he's writing for a non-Judean audience, and so it's great for those of us who didn't grow up in in Judea um, to, uh, you know, he's writing for a Roman audience who who doesn't know the geography of the land, doesn't necessarily know all the history, and so he's, I, I think that, changes the flavor of what you read there because the New Testament just assumes things whereas Josephus is like all right let me walk you through this let me tell you how the temple works and as opposed to just sort of jumping right in i find that really helpful um so uh who i mean who so you mentioned Josephus comes from this priestly family born in the late 30s what else do we know about Josephus and his role in the Jewish war
1: so yeah his role in the Jewish war is very controversial and one of the big things to know about him is that he is a controversial figure and for you know for centuries essentially Jewish people the Jewish people didn't really read josephus he was preserved for us by christian scribes and copyists and so on and so this, basically the story is this in josephus has one book that's called the vita the life which is a kind of autobiography and he's also got this book about the jewish war which we refer to as the jewish war and in these two books, he talks about his own role in the Jewish War, and the way that he describes it is that he was a general of a within the the um, the revolt. So he was sent to Galilee in the uh, early stages of the revolt to lead the Galilean resistance to Rome. Okay, so. He then you know he tells us about various things that he did he quite proudly tells us about he had, he was a pretty brutal kind of commander of the bit of the, of the the soldiers that he had yeah, I mean it's kind of interesting to see a different kind of cultural norms and so on kind of and was proud proud of being very shrewd and sort of duplicitous and stuff, but, you know. all. Has,
0: of, that, has that inspired your academic leaning in any way?
1: <laughs> Not yet. I mean, one of the things that he does, for example, as an act of clemency is he allows somebody to cut off their own hand rather than be killed. So um, haven't quite got to that level yet. So, the, but the most controversial thing of all is that eventually in a northern Galilean town of Yotapata, he is besieged, him and he and his soldiers are besieged, and this little a hilltop Town, and he is kind of uh, besie. He's he and a group of uh, high-ranking uh, elite uh, citizens of of the town are in are in hiding, and they decide that they're going to commit suicide rather than to give themselves over to the Romans. Josephus says, "No, we shouldn't do that. It's very impious, impious to to commit suicide. Instead, we should draw lots and one by one." you know, kill one person, kill the next person, kill the next person, and so on, so we're all dead, and the last person will commit suicide, but that's better than us all committing suicide. Well, as it turns out, he somehow manages to be the second last person in the line. No no one really knows, although there is a, there is a um, sort of a later translation of Josephus that sort of implies that he kind of manipulated things, although the original text doesn't say that. But in any case, he ends up being the second last in the line, and then he convinces the other guy not to kill him, but instead to to surrender anyway. So he does then surrender along with this other guy, and
0: now he's got he, some explaining to do.
1: Right, and he does have some massive explaining because he says that in the lead up to these events he had been having dreams and god had given him the interpretation of the dreams in fact he presents himself often as a prophet as a kind of jeremiah prophet someone who who knew that terrible things were going to happen to jerusalem and so on Uh, he later does that outside the walls of jerusalem he tries to persuade the uh the the remaining combatants to surrender and so on but essentially what he does is once he's persuaded this you know fellow person to, to the survivor to go and surrender, he goes to Vespasian, who is the, uh, the the commanding officer, and he says to him, look, don't kill me and don't send me to the emperor. Preserve me for yourself, because you are going to be the next emperor, and then when you're the emperor, you can try me. This, of course, is shocking and outrageous, but in the course of events over the next year or so, Vespasian does, in fact, completely unexpectedly, because he wasn't in the line, he's not in the Julio-Claudian line, but there's a, there's a period of, of a, a year of turmoil that goes on after Nero commits suicide in 68. And then there's the year of, of four emperors where you go through Otto, Vitellius, and Gulba. Or it's actually Gulba, Otto, Vitellius. And then Vespasian is actually declared the emperor after kind of a brief civil war. And then all of a sudden... The way that Josephus tells it, all of a sudden, everyone recognized that he was a prophet. And that elevates Josephus to he's a, from being a prisoner of war to being a kind of very important asset to this new uh, imperial house. Now, the Flavian house, which lasts with just three emperors, Vespasian and his two sons, Titus and Domitian, that just lasts to the end of the century. But he becomes an important asset because he's this prophetic voice from the East who ostensibly announced the, the coming of this new um, line. And the, the Romans use Josephus for their own propaganda purposes in order to justify the legitimacy of this new house, this new uh, imperial line. So Josephus gets becomes notorious and famous and so on, he is then used by the Romans as a go between, as an interpreter, who they, um, the Romans try to get the, the combatants in Jerusalem to surrender. Josephus gives speeches from the walls and so on, and they throw missiles at him. Uh, it's all to no avail. He fails to persuade them to give up. But, and, you know, Josephus then describes, you know, in very poignant and, you know, with great pathos the fall of Jerusalem. And it is really quite moving and tragic to read his account of the fall of Jerusalem and the devastation of the city. And then he talks about how he was he was made a pensioner. He was given a pension in Rome. He's given Vespasian's own house to live in. That is the house that he had before he became the emperor. And he's made a Roman citizen. That's why we know him as Flavius Josephus. It's, it's an indication of his Roman citizenship. And, um, and he lives the rest of his days in, in, in Rome in a way... Doing penance, and I don't know if that's not the right term, it's an anachronistic term. But his writings, in a way, are kind of part justification for what he's done, but then also um, kind of explaining to the Roman world who the Jews are and why the Romans should not think of the Jews as intrinsically problematic or war, you know, kind of warring and so on, but that they should be left alone. Um, to have their own country, to have their own religion and, and um, customs, and to be allowed to live in peace. And you could say partly his argument is that they should be allowed to rebuild their their constitutional state um, centered on the temple. And so one of the motivating hopes in Josephus, some people argue, is that he was hoping that the, that the Romans would rebuild the temple which in fact was the norm of, of, of Roman practice, is that they didn't usually devastate national shrines and then leave them like that. They often would allow the locals to rebuild them. And the expectation would have been that the Romans, could re, that, that, well, that the Romans would allow the Jews to rebuild their, uh, their temple. And so all the way through Josephus' writing, while he, is, um, he laments the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, in one of his later ways, his last work against Apian, he speaks about, well, and also in the antiquities, speaks about the temple system and the simple system of priests and so on as a present reality, not just as something that's in the past and done for, but this is who we are, this is how we operate, very much kind of with that sense that, well, this is going to be like this
0: again. Yeah, do you think that? Do you think that was a... Uh... A possible scenario like prior to the Barcopa revolt and was at 135
1: yeah people have written on this especially in the immediate aftermath of domitian's death domitian was the third of the flavians as the second son of vespasian he was he was murdered in a palace coup and then he was then there was nerva who was a, a short-lived emperor this there are some indications that there was a sort of an up sort of a sudden excitement that maybe now the temple would be rebuilt, and that that would have carried on into the time of Trajan, who's the next emperor, and that slowly, slowly, that the non-appearance of the new temple leads to growing frustration. And so you see in Trajan's time in North Africa, there's there's another there's sort of uprisings and stuff that get pushed down. Then in, in Hadrian's time, into you know, once we get to one hundred and thirty, it's like really boiling frustration that nothing has happened. And then you get Bar Kochba, who is another, who's kind of a messianic figure of sorts, trying to to force the hand of history, as it were, to bring about the re-es reestablishment of the Jewish temple state, which leads to the you know kind of second devastation of Jerusalem, and the transformation of Jerusalem into a Roman colony called Elia Capitolina, and at that point there's no hope of. The temple being reestablished. It's completely, the city is completely transformed into a Roman town. So, the, in the inter, inter, interim time, from 70, certainly for the next 30 or 40 years, there was genuine hope that the temple could be rebuilt, which would have been a normal practice.
0: Yeah, so a lot of your work has focused on antiquities. Um, so, you've done critical editions of uh, portions of antiquities. Uh, so, what interests you in this? Particular work and um, what have you kind of discovered along the way?
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, so, J- Josephus's Jewish Antiquities is a massive, unwieldy work in which he gives you gives us the prequel to the war, as it were. The war uh, this they overlap with each other: the the Jewish war and the Antiquities. But the Antiquities takes this basically says, "I'm going to tell you the national history of the Jewish people." And that means from the beginning of time, understood biblically, up till kind of the beginnings of the Jewish war. He says, you know, I'm gonna give you a whole national history of the Jewish people. And the first half of that, so it's a it's a work in twenty books. Based on other you know well-known histories, um, most um, conspicuously Dionysius of Halicarnassus's Roman antiquities, which was a twenty book
0: history of Rome. So it's kind of a parallel to that.
1: yeah, well, it's kind of like a like he has a he has a Jewish version of that. And so in twenty books, he tells the the history of Jewish antiquity. Of course, antiquity is a very important value. The different um, peoples of the ancient world vied for being the most ancient of peoples. They, you know, it was really important to have ancient roots, and so that's a part of what's motivating him. And the first half of his uh, that work, the, actually, it's slightly more than than half. It goes into book eleven, is essentially the narrative of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible, and then the second half of it is sort of the stuff from the end of the Hebrew Bible up to. Um, the outbreak of the Jewish war or Josephus's own time. And so that first part there in the first 10 and a half books or 11 books, actually is it's a retelling in Josephus's own words of the Hebrew Bible. So it's, and it amounts to a paraphrase of the story of Israel. And it's interesting for a number of reasons One of the reasons is is that Josephus frames it as a continuation of or a fulfillment of the work that was done by the translators of the Septuagint. So he tells the story of how the Septuagint authors, the translators, they got together and translated the books of Moses and, you know, miraculously had this incredibly accurate uh, translation into Greek of of the Torah. And Josephus says, but they didn't finish the work. I'm going to finish the work. And... Like them, I am going to give you an exact translation of the Hebrew Bible without leaving out a single word or phrase or anything. I'm going to give you an exact rendition. Then, of course, when you start reading his text, you find out that it's nothing like what, what we would think of as an exact rendition. It's really quite para- paraphrastic and sort of wide-ranging, and it includes you know, new stories we hadn't heard of before, and it leaves out certain stories. And so it becomes an example of what scholars sometimes refer to as rewritten Bible. And There's other examples of that from the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, the Genesis Apocryphon or the Book of Jubilees and other books like that, where you, you know, the early Jewish kind of retellings of the Old Testament that are sometimes quite quirky and, you know, un, and surprising. You know, you kind of there's things in there that you didn't know were in the, that were a part of the Bible. And then that raises the question of, OK, when Josephus does this, Is he being deceptive? Is this part of a tradition of how the Bible was being told? Um, What did he mean when he said, I'm going to give you an accurate uh, representation of the Bible? And maybe he thinks that that's exactly what this is. I'm giving you the truth about the Old Testament, like I'm telling you the true story. And I tend to think of it that way rather than it being a big ruse, because, I mean, he knew that people could compare they're because it's not just that it's all out of Hebrew there's already an, an existent Greek translation of the Old Testament so and so you know it's just it's a fascinating example of a first century retelling of the whole Hebrew Bible by a Jewish priestly writer and it gives us a sense of what for him is important what for him um, is less important and for my interest in it is because my book is called, Uh, the image of the Jew in Josephus' biblical paraphrase, I'm interested in the ways that he himself, perhaps for himself, perhaps for a Roman audience, but also kind of tangentially for a Jewish audience as well, is offering a kind of reconstructed picture of what it means to be a Jew now that the world is so radically different with the destruction of the temple and all of that. And whether, I mean, partly simply saying, look, the Jews are still the Jews. We've always been this way and we're going to continue being this way. We have these values, we have these deep-rooted histories, and these are the things that we stand for. And so in that light, there's a kind of apologetic tone, certain certain potentially embarrassing th- parts of the story are left out, like there's no reference to the golden calf, that's one of the most famous omissions. Josephus tells the story of Moses and the wilderness wanderings without ever needing the golden calf to feature. And so then, you know, that raises the question, what was it about the golden calf that he thought, well, I don't want to tell that part? But then he really embellishes, in a kind of Hellenistic way, embellishes the figures of Abraham and Moses, for example. Abraham becomes like a sage figure. He goes to Egypt, as we know. But when he's in Egypt, he actually teaches the Egyptians about astrology, teaches them about monotheism and that sort of thing. When, uh, when Joseph is in Egypt, it, it talks about how Joseph you know, marries uh, an Egyptian princess, how he leads Uh, Moses, he grows up and and leads the Egyptians into battle against the Ethiopians and so on. So kind of the idealization of of Jewish biblical figures in guise that would have been very acceptable to a Roman readership. So kind of paints them in sort of Roman guise, you could say, Greco-Roman guise. And so it's just fascinating to see how he presents David, how he presents Saul. Like, he recognizes that Saul was a flawed character. So, you know, he, does, he doesn't he does whitewash everyone, as it were, but he also, you know, has interesting nuances. I mean, a very fascinating nuance for me, because of my interest in the book of Revelation as well, is the way that he retells the stories of Daniel. And, you know, he mostly leaves out the prophetic parts of Daniel, but he does give some indications— and he does summarize uh, some of the visions, and he makes it clear that he thinks that Daniel had something to say about his own time, about the first century, including this idea that the fourth kingdom is Rome. Remember the fourth kingdom, and then there's the question about, is Rome going to be overthrown? And he's very coy about that. In fact, he says if you he says I can only tell you about the stuff that's happened in the past. If you want to know what's going to happen in the future, you have to read the book of Daniel, which gives you the sense that he thinks that the book of Daniel is about to come true. And we know that, you know, a, there were other Jewish writers in the 1st century who were reading the book of Daniel in such a way as to make them think that the that you know the the great stone that gets cut out of the mountain and knocks over the statue is about to fulfilled in the first century, which may have even fueled the Jewish rebellion against Rome itself. So it's an interesting kind of speculation.
0: I mean, in your description, it's just, it's so apparent, the, the fine lines he's always walking between being Jewish, but yet defecting to the Romans and then being right in there with the Romans, but yet, hinting at the overthrow of Rome. I mean that's that's quite a line to walk.
1: Yeah, and I you know I actually have found in some of my work, not so much in my thesis, but some other work that I did later to that is, is some it's helpful to read some post-colonial theorists on kind of reading ancient literature in in with these questions in mind to show how peoples living in sort of colonialized or subjugated areas have got limited tools by which they can kind of right back against their overlords. And Josephus fits that quite well as someone who, you know, uses the language of the, you know, of the dominant culture, he uses the language of Greek. The Eastern Roman Empire was Greek. And so he uses the language, their language, and he uses their, their kind of genres, you know, he's writing in this specific kind of histori- historiographical way and so on. And in a way, you, he's often accused of being a sort of a lackey and a stooge of the Romans and even, you know, kind of almost as an imperial uh, propagandist. But you can see many ways in which he's undermining the legitimacy of the of the Roman conquest and pointing towards something that's beyond the Roman conquest, which is the reestablishment of um, the Jewish nation and so on. So I tend to, I mean, he's definitely a shrewd guy. You have to always be thinking, you know, what really happened. Um, But on the other hand, I think it's always, it, it makes, it's more fruitful to try to be as sympathetic as you can be with it, with critical reason rather than dismissing an author as being, you know, completely useless to us. He's massively useful. And there's so many ways in which when he describes things that we can verify that he, he rings true. And, uh, like, for example, archaeologists have often fruitfully used Josephus' descriptions of cities and of walls and of to kind of say, okay, well, he gave reasonably accurate descriptions of these things, the walls of Jerusalem, the description of Masada. Of course, then what happened at Masada then becomes a question. You know, one of the questions is, well, how did Josephus know the things that he claims to know? Was he just making that up in a kind of romantic sense? And maybe there was a certain amount of romance He is, after all, a storyteller, and ancient historians were storytellers and moralists. I mean, he's really moralistic. He's always got a, the lesson is this. But he's a Deuteronomist. So one of the things that he says at the beginning of the Jewish Antiquities, when he's paraphrasing the Bible, is to say that my uh, narrative is to show that in all those ways where people followed the laws that had been carefully laid down, they prospered, and whenever they they went against the laws they everything turned to tragedy and, and disaster he's a, he's a kind of deuteronomist and he finds kind of a he uses the greek concept of pronoia of providence as as a way of connecting to the kind of greek or roman world to say that you know um, providence is on your side if you live a kind of a virtuous life and if you live a, a kind of a life of hubris you find yourself confronted with all kinds of insurpassable challenges. And he tells the story of the fall of Jerusalem as a kind of a tragedy where um, this beautiful, amazing city has been overthrown because of the the hubris of impious people who were really a minority, not the majority of the Jewish people, but a minority who led the people astray and then, um, you know, kind of caused the... Cause God to abandon the city.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so Josephus could be received by a Roman audience in this sort of theme of hubris, uh, or a Jewish audience in terms of fidelity to the law. Do, do you think he was especially drawn to figures like uh, Daniel and Joseph and Esther, as you know, because of his own prominence in the Roman in Roman society?
1: I think so. I think that there is a kind of a, an affinity that he has. Because of his own situation, you're exactly right. These people living in diaspora environments, very much in the minority where the the stakes are enormous, you know, for having kind of a a really a carefully framed way of saying things and to to walk that fine line that you referenced, uh, to somehow maintain a level of faithfulness to the Jewish spirit and the Jewish scriptures and so on, and yet not to provoke um, recrimination from the overwhelming superpower so that does seem to be what josephus is about and his, re- his retelling of the story of esther is very interesting as well
0: i'd love to get into that i want to ask you a quick a uh, few quick speed round questions uh, before we close out our time what, what's the most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years
1: <laughs> oh my word i don't know um well let me say just in in the um in the uh, spirit of what we've been talking about, I think it's the reissuing of Emil Schurer's History of the, the Jewish People in the Age of Jesus Christ, this multi-volume work, just as a just a profoundly important work that establishes the Jewish uh, framework for the for the New Testament.
0: Okay, that's a first. Pers- you're the first person to say that. Everyone says Paul and Palestinian Judaism or Paul and the gift. All right, what idea in biblical studies needs to die?
1: Wow. I think we need to get beyond, certainly in New Testament studies, the kind of the tension between is this a is the most important thing to understand a Jewish background to the text, or is it a, a Greco-Roman background? And it's I think we need to understand that that it's both and they lived in a fluid world in which both, you know, all kinds of forces were at play. And sometimes it's one, sometimes it's another, and sometimes it's a mixture of both of those. And so sometimes it's a sort of a, a tedious Kind of argument between the two, which I think needs to be uh, put to bed. All
0: right. What's uh, one the the last book which, after having read it, you threw it across the room?
1: <laughs> I was looking now, the a book that I threw across the room. Oh my word! Um, you know, I don't usually do that. Um,
0: usually, no, note that word.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I've never thrown a, a book across the room.
0: Um, what's something you've read recently that's inspired you?
1: Well, I've just a very interesting book that I've just finished reading that has been very, I don't know if it's inspiring, but very interesting is a book on the dating of the New Testament, a complete revisioning of the New Testament. Ah, I've seen that book. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's he called? He's from McMaster University, Rethinking the Dating of the New Testament. Yeah, I've just written, I, actually, I read it while I was traveling around Turkey.
0: So that's by Jonathan Bernier. Bernier,
1: yeah, Jonathan Bernier. Yeah, I, that is that book is verging on inspiring. Um, it's just very interesting because it's a whole rethink of the system of how we date the New Testament, and he his argument is that the whole New Testament should be understood as having been written before the year seventy. Or some of the, some of the maybe you know there's some questionable books that you know kind of we, we don't know for sure that might be beyond that but the vast majority um, of it should be thought of as having been written before 70 and it's it's a fascinating rethink of of it and it's it's written in a way that is just very fair in that he lays out his framework and then he says how he has worked it through and he says this is how I what i think the implications are but he but he's open and says well you know you could think of it differently but here's how i think of it and so yeah
0: it doesn't come across as a sort of fundamentalist reaction to late dating but but uh i mean i mean it you know at an intuitive level the lack of any sort of past tense reference to the, to the destruction of the temple among all the new testament books is pretty striking and,
1: yeah, yeah, I mean, that was one of my one of the things that drew me to it, because I have been interested in the question of the impact of the fall of Jerusalem on early Christianity. And so one of the questions I've had is, why does the New Testament not refer to the fall of Jerusalem ever? And so his answer is, well, because it, had, you know, it hadn't happened yet. And that is just the most sort of straightforward answer to it, and it certainly worth a very serious uh, consideration. So I, I've i really an, I enjoyed that book a great deal and just finished reading it a couple of weeks ago.
0: Yeah. Um, do you have any hobbies or hidden talents? I know you've, uh-huh. got, you've got public talents with uh, painting. you want to talk about that or uh, other yeah, hobbies? Yeah,
1: sure. I, I am a, yeah, I'm a watercolor artist. Um, I, mean, I do other kinds of paint, uh, other kinds of art as well, but mostly I do watercolor and uh, love doing it, try to paint at least um at least once a week and um yeah that's that's one of the things i love to do i'm an avid follower of cricket which is an, an anachronism because in canada there's not much cricket going on but i follow it on, on you know one of the great things about the internet you can follow you know things from far away but i i'm a bit of a cricket nut
0: yeah i should say you grew up in south africa so that accounts for some of that avid yeah behavior. it's way of
1: Keeping, my, uh, keeping some connection to my
0: roots, yeah, yeah. for sure. And then, um, yeah, I don't know, maybe you want to just say a word about how growing up in South Africa shaped you as a scholar.
1: Yeah, I think that it shaped me quite profoundly as a person, and uh, my scholarship grows out of that. I think I am very aware of the power of biblical texts to shape narratives of nations, And um, one of the ways in which that played out in South Africa was the ways in which the Bible was used as a justification for apartheid. And so just I am always very attentive to the ways that we can be blind to our own um, issues and blind spots and, you know, much more than blind spots, just, you know, willful kind of ignoring of things. So the the Bible can be used um, as a very powerful tool for bad as well as for good. And so I think that's given me a certain kind of sensitivity to those sorts of things, perhaps.
0: Yeah, so back to Josephus for a moment. Just wondering if you could uh, mention a couple of ways that studying Josephus illuminates the New Testament.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it illuminates the New Testament by helping us to understand that the New Testament is written in, in a real world where, um, you know, it's not just a world unto itself. The New Testament if, is telling us about people and places and things that happen that happen in in a historical and a cultural context. And that to me is just always helpful is to not build up a big wall around the New Testament that you then think, well, it just happened in a bubble, but rather to see it as happening in a world. And um, Josephus just helps us to understand something more about that world. Not necessarily always specifically. It's not that you can go and look up, you know, each thing in the New Testament and find it in Josephus, but in a general sense, I mean, and to me, the thing that I have done try to do always in my uh, reading of josephus is to is to do a very honest and appreciative reading uh, reading of him as a as a person, as an author, and uh, not just as a mind from which to kind of raid you know kind of the bits that are useful to me, but to see Josephus as a whole corpus, a whole body of work. And then to treat the New Testament like that as well, to treat Paul like that, to treat other writers in the New Testament like that. So I think I've just learned how to be a reader, how to be a historian, and to bring a kind of a broader sensitivity to my reading of the New Testament than I would have had if I hadn't done this kind of in-depth reading of Josephus. And a reading of Josephus that was, in a sense, trying to understand Josephus on Josephus' own terms— not just as a source for me to kind of pick and choose bits that would help me to understand the book of Acts or something.
0: Great. Well, Paul, we have so much more I'm sure we could discuss, and I'd love to have another conversation with you sometime about Revelation because you've written on that quite a bit and taught, about, uh, taught on that. So, uh, But for now, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me.
1: Great. Thanks so much, Matt. I really enjoyed it.
0: You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/slash/donate.